Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. There are four words that no person wants to hear. They strike fear in the hearts of caffeine addicts and morning commuters everywhere. Those words? We're out of coffee. To some, it's a fate worse than death. Whether you drink it black or loaded with cream and sugar, many of us can't get through our day without our morning brew. And if that describes you, I need you to know that I am in the same club as you. Coffee is an industry raking in tens of billions of dollars all over the world each year, from global chains to independent roasters. Our lattes and macchiatos are serious business. But America's love of coffee isn't new. We've been drinking it since before we were even a country. Yet during the American Revolutionary War, the colonies faced major food shortages. The farms that cultivated the livestock and crops that people consumed were left to the wives while their husbands went off to fight. And that meant that women weren't just responsible for taking care of the children and the home, but also the cows, the pigs, the corn, and so much more, all by themselves. International trade had come to a standstill as well, since the war had blocked all imports coming from the West Indies. And it wasn't like families got to keep everything they grew, either. Both sides, British and colonial, were notorious for requisitioning supplies for their own armies, and that included what local farms produced. And you know how things go. When the supply is low and the demand is high, basic economics and greed kick in. Pretty soon, merchants did one of two things. They either hoarded goods for themselves, or they started jacking up prices on basic necessities like sugar, flour, and you guessed it, coffee. With people already at their wit's end, farmers and other local residents began taking measures into their own hands, leading to an outbreak of activism within the colonies and they voiced their displeasure in a few different ways. Sometimes they boycotted goods that had been heavily taxed. For example, imported cloth from Britain was eschewed in favor of cheaper homespun alternatives. Other times they sought retribution through more violent means. Then, because so many men were enlisted in General Washington's army, this charge against greedy salesmen was led by women. Perhaps the best-known incident occurred in July of 1777. A Boston merchant by the name of Thomas Boylston had gotten an idea. It wasn't the smartest idea given the current socio-political climate, but it certainly was an idea. He decided to price gouge his loyal customers on the coffee that they drank each day. While the women who frequented his shop didn't take kindly to such an egregious abuse of his position, they kindly asked that he lower the price back down to a more reasonable amount. Boylston, though, wouldn't budge, and the women of Boston wouldn't either. It wasn't like they could go grow their own coffee beans in protest. So they showed up on July 24th for a negotiation of sorts. As Abigail Adams wrote in a letter to her husband John at the time, a number of females, some say a hundred, some say more, assembled with a cart and trucks, marched down to the warehouse and demanded the keys, which he refused to deliver. What transpired was a short yet powerful battle for dignity, decency, and dark roast. One woman grabbed Boylston by the neck and launched him into the cart. They all surrounded him, and with no one there to help protect him, he handed over the keys. 
The women then tipped the cart and ejected him onto the floor before opening up the warehouse and loading up their trucks with as much java as they could carry. What's more, Boylston wasn't alone when all of this happened. There were several other men in attendance who stood on the sidelines and watched it all go down. Perhaps they didn't want to get involved in a matter that didn't concern them, or maybe they feared what the women would do to them if they tried to get involved. Whatever the case, the Boston Coffee Party proved two important things. First, protesters don't have to throw a beverage into the ocean to make a splash. And secondly, never get between someone and their coffee. If there's one thing we know about people, it's that no matter how hard you try to stop them, they will always find a way to get a hold of alcohol. Prohibition was the result of religious groups and legislators coming together to put an end to certain societal ills, such as domestic violence and drunkenness. And what did they blame for all that? Alcohol. Once enacted, Prohibition shut down the production and sale of hooch in the United States during the 1920s and early 30s, which led to a massive black market booze industry. But that wasn't the first time a country tried to outlaw alcohol. Back in Ireland during the mid-1800s, another type of prohibition was getting off the ground, and the Irish people weren't totally into it. It started just as the American movement had with a religious organization. In Ireland, it was led by a Catholic priest named Father Theobald Matthew. Father Matthew had created a group called the Total Abstinence Society, and once people joined, they took a pledge that they would not consume a single drop of alcohol ever again. Father Matthew was surprisingly successful, too. The Irish people seemed to want to make a change. At its peak, almost half the adult population had sworn off booze for the rest of their lives after taking his pledge. But even though they had promised to keep alcohol out of their lives, some individuals couldn't stay away completely. They wanted a way to relax after a hard day at work without the guilt of violating their oath. So they sought other means of getting drunk, ones that were non-alcoholic. And that's where Dr. Kelly from Draperstown County came in. Kelly had found a loophole. He couldn't consume whiskey or other spirits, but he could drink ether. Ether had been discovered in 1275 by Raimundus Luyas, a Franciscan monk and chemist. Then in 1540, a German scientist by the name of Valerius Cordus began synthesizing it in a lab, creating what he called sweet vitriol. In 1842, an American doctor put ether to work as a general anesthetic during surgery, but Dr. Kelly had found a new and specific use for it now in Ireland, to get drunk while still remaining faithful to Father Matthew's pledge. You see, he figured out that ether could be consumed as both a liquid and a gas. And so in 1845, he started drinking it in small doses to get the buzz that he'd been so sorely missing. Then he got his friends and patients in on it. Thanks to Dr. Kelly's ingenious life hack, ether became the drink of choice for adults all over Ireland, even the clergy. One priest remarked that it was a liquor on which a man could get drunk with a clean conscience. Ether was sold everywhere, including at grocery stores, and its widespread use quickly led to widespread abuse. 17,000 gallons of ether were being consumed each year by as many as 100,000 Irish citizens. Even children as young as 10 were found intoxicated from it, with the fumes clearly noticeable on their breath. And ether also worked its way across Europe, and even here stateside. The French enjoyed it with their cognac, while Americans drank it down in their whiskey. Sometimes it was watered down or spiced with cinnamon and cloves. It was even poured into people's morning coffee. Although ether was only popular because of its potency, not its taste. 
It was a means to an end, capable of some dangerous side effects. For example, some people who passed gas after consuming ether would find that their emissions carried a certain smell with them. Their chemical-like odor was a dead giveaway that these were ether vapors, flammable ether vapors. A careless drunk might sometimes light up a smoke or let one rip near a fireplace and suddenly be engulfed in a plume of fire, or at the very least, suffer a burned posterior. Ether was consumed in Ireland until the law finally got involved toward the end of the 19th century. As of 1890, the British government deemed it a poison, and sales of the substance were restricted to chemists and pharmacists. But for a long time, Ireland was an ethereal wonderland, where a person could abstain from alcohol, yet enjoy its effects without guilt. As long as they minded where the wind blew. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.